Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. I want to read for you now this passage Ben will be speaking to us about this morning. It picks up from verse 15, uh, where it starts talking about the power of, of Jesus the Son. <clears throat> the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Hey everyone, Uh, it's great that we can be here. My name's Ben, if we haven't met before. Uh, We're going to look at this passage that we read out there from Colossians 1, 15 to 23. But before we do that, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be present right now. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. We pray, Father, that this morning you would do a work in us to bring us back to see the magnitude of all that you are and all that you've done. And we pray, that, we pray this so that we would have a bigger impact, Lord, in the rest of our lives as individuals and as a church, so that more and more people can come to know you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, not this morning, this week, I was reading an article about uh, one of our Olympians. Her name is Jess Stenson. If you follow closely, she didn't actually race at the Tokyo Olympics, but she's one of our uh, marathon runners. Now, the reason she didn't run in Tokyo was because in the last couple of years, she had a baby in 2019. So she had a bit going on and so missed the cut for Tokyo. But uh, she was in lockdown watching the last Olympics, like many of us. But as she was watching these Olympics, she kind of came across this realization. The article was about that, about her pursuit to go to Paris to run the marathon. And this is what she said. This is her quote uh, in this article. She said, having Billy, her, her daughter, and time away from running has reminded me how much I love my sport and about the opportunities it provides. And then she said this line that really caught me, kind of stopped me in my tracks. She said this, running is what I'm meant to be doing. Now, as I was reading this, that struck me. That's purpose. 
She really knows what she's living for. She can articulate it clearly. And we know that to be uh, a runner at a marathon level, at the Olympic level, you're going to have to have some sort of drive. Right? You don't just get to the Olympics because you wanted to go for a run. This is 42 kilometers, not of fun. <laughs> That's not fun. <laughs> and she's doing this over and over again to get at uh, such a high level so that she can compete at a, at a world level. And so you can see there in her words there, the drive, this is what, she says, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Now, as I read that, I couldn't help but think about it for me. And I wondered if for me, not running, of course, running's not my purpose, but for me, if I could articulate what I'm living for in such a clear way, with such clarity, and I wonder if you're the same. You know, I know that for many of us, we have a vague idea of what we want to see happen maybe this week or maybe this year. Maybe some of us are so bold to have five-year plans or 10-year plans, but could we articulate with such clarity what we're meant to be doing? what our purpose is. And not only that, I think a bigger question is, what does God say about that? You know, what we see or we, what we sense is our purpose, what we're living for, what does God say about this? And do those two things match up? What does God say that our purpose is or what we're meant to be living for? What has he made us for? Well, this is what we're going to discover and look into as we look at this passage because as we dig into Colossians 1 15 to 23 we see a few different things that God tells us here and helps us as we understand our purpose or what we're living for and the first thing if you have your Bibles there have them open as well it'll be on the screen but the first thing we see is that we have a maker who has made us for himself verse 15 we see this the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what's the purpose that we're supposed to have, that we're made for? What's our purpose? Well, the first thing we see is that we have a maker, and he's made us for himself. And what Paul does here is he introduces us to our maker. Right? That's what he does. He wants us to see the magnitude, the bigness of Jesus. It says there in that first verse, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And these two pictures are there to help us see how big Jesus is. Right? That's the idea there. So the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Jesus is God. That's a big deal. You know, how many people throughout history want to know what God is like? You know, people dream about that. They write songs about that. People make statues out of their image to worship God in some ways to give them a picture of what God is like. But we see it here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. Everything about God, you look to Jesus, you see. So when you see Jesus' character, his love, his compassion, his power, that is what God is like because Jesus is God. But then we see he's the firstborn over creation. And this here is getting at the status of God, but I know the language is a little bit strange because firstborn doesn't always mean high status. In fact, in the ancient world, firstborn could mean two things, either born first, as many of us are firstborns, or it could mean high status. So in the Old Testament, Israel are described as the firstborn, but it wasn't born first, it was the status. So when Jesus is speaking, when, when Jesus is the firstborn here, which is it? 
It's important we get that right because the Jehovah's Witness will say that he was born first. He was created at some point in history. So what is it? Is it high status or is it born first? Well, let's let the passage tell us that because you would think if it was born first, then he would go on to explain how Jesus was created, but what does it do? It goes on to speak about how Jesus is the creator. He's not born first. He was never born in a moment in history, but he is the highest, the greatest, because he's the creator. We see that. It says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible thrones or powers or authorities. Jesus has the highest status. All of creation was made by Jesus. He's the greatest of all. There is no one who compares to Jesus. Nothing. No superpower in the world, no super brain that someone might have, no wealth. Nothing compares to Jesus because everything else is created. Jesus is creator. Paul shows us the maker. But we see his magnitude and his bigness not just in the fact that he made the world, But we see it there in verse 16, the world was made through him. It was created. All things have been created through him. Now, I I love this picture because what it shows us is that everything in the world was made through Jesus, through his power, his wisdom, his creativity. And so you can kind of reverse engineer it. And when you look at the world, you see Jesus. You see his power, his wisdom, and his creativity. So whenever you see something powerful, You know, those storms roll through that shake the house, the great mountains, the waves crashing into the cliffs. Anything that symbols power in creation, it points us to Jesus because he created the world through his power. Or wisdom. The world was created through Jesus' wisdom. So whenever you see something in the world that points to the fact that there is a creator behind it, so you know, the scientific discoveries that will blow your mind, the philosophies that took thousands of years to develop, anything that's ordered and structured, it points us to Jesus because he made the world through his wisdom or his creativity. Is this not the best one? Right, have you ever wondered why all food doesn't just taste the same? Maybe you don't have a sense of smell and it does, but it's not meant to be like that. Food tastes different. Why why does it taste different? Why do different flowers smell different? Why do we have colors? It's because we have a creator who stands behind it, who made everything through his creativity. So Jesus, you're getting the big bigness of Jesus, the magnitude of Jesus. He made the world, and he made it through him, through his power, his wisdom, and his creativity. Now here's the question. What's that got to do with purpose? What's that got to do with what we're living for? Well, Paul speaks about it there. And it's the end of verse 16, and it's important we see this because he's kind of saying everything's been made by Jesus and through Jesus, and then there's that key word there, all things have been created through him and for him. All of creation was made for Jesus. Now this is worth slowing down a little bit on because everything so far is kind of kids' church basics. God made the world, and the world shows us who Jesus is, his power, his creativity, his wisdom. But this aspect sometimes we don't talk that much about. Now, why is it that we don't talk about how creation was made for Jesus? Is it that it's a little bit complex to get our heads around? Maybe. Or maybe it's because we live in a world that is self-centered. 
right? We're all a part of that world where everything revolves around us. I, I'm the center of my world. That's, that's what our world tells us. You know, everything is about me. You go to Garden City, all of the advertising is about treat yourself because you're the center of the world. So treat yourself. Just do whatever you want. We're at the center. That's what our world is, right? We, we are at the center of our world. And so this idea that we're not, the world was not created for me, but for someone else, for Jesus, that's a big deal. I mean, we benefit from the world, but primarily the world was not for us. So it's kind of like this. Uh, a few months ago, my nephew turned three. And on his third birthday, he was having this birthday party. And at the same time in that week, my brother's fridge died. So he got a fridge ordered, and it just so happened that it arrived on his birthday. So he has the morning, the birthday presents in the morning, and then you know, they have the cake and all of that, and then all of a sudden the doorbell rings, and he goes to the door, and there in front of him is the biggest present he's ever seen. It's wrapped up, it's awesome, and then they pull it out, and it looks good. It's better than all these other presents. And so for him, he's just got the best birthday present ever. So we go over that night, and we ask him, how's the birthday? And he tells us all about his brand new fridge. Now, think about that picture. He benefits from the fridge. Of course he benefits from the fridge. But the fridge, he's not old enough and wise enough to realize that the fridge wasn't his birthday present. It's not for him. Now, this is kind of what we do with creation. We benefit from creation. Right? We enjoy it. We have that nice meal. We see that nice sunset. We get to experience the joy of it, but what we're seeing here in this passage is that it's not primarily for us. We benefit, but it's not for us. Now, how does that make you feel? It's your gut reaction to hearing that this world is not for you. I remember for me, the first time that I realized this, and it was kind of shocking for me to realize how obvious it was. So I was at Mount Tambourine and just had one of those moments where I was at a lookout there and we had, I don't know, I had about half an hour just to enjoy the silence of the moment. And sitting there, it was just one of those moments. You know, if you've ever had kind of that moment, so the crispness of the air, the sun shining through, it was just beautiful. And then looking out, could see birds chirping and not like cockatoos, but the nice sounding birds, could see the lizards scurrying across the ground, and then this joey or kangaroo jumped through. And it was just like this pristine moment, this beautiful moment. But then I had this realization. If I wasn't in that moment, that moment still would have happened. Now, it's kind of shocking how obvious that is. But for me, it messed with me a little bit. If I'm not there, that exact moment happens. And not only that, but that exact moment happens at kind of an infinite level all of the time. You know, we get a sunset and we think, man, how good is this sunset? It's just for me. We post it on our social media account. But literally, that sunset is happening for millions of people at the same time. And not only that, but at the same point, it's a sunset for us. It's a sunrise for someone. It's probably more beautiful for them than it is for us. You know, that moment that you experience something crazy, you know, some sort of animal or whatever, 
That happens at an infinite level all of the time right around the world. Consistently, the sun continues to produce beautiful sunsets and beautiful sunrises, and animals do crazier things than what we capture on our phones. It, it just is infinite amount of moments all of the time, and sometimes people see that. But the majority of the time, there's no one even there to witness it. And what does that tell us? It tells us that creation's not primarily for us. That's what this passage says there. Those beautiful moments that we miss, Jesus sees. And it's because creation was made by him and through him and for him. And then there's also the fact that as we're sitting there in that moment, we are not above and beyond creation. We are a part of it because we are created too. So it means that it's not just creation that's made for its creator, but us too are made for our maker. So you see what Paul's saying here. When we grasp the magnitude of Jesus, the world is made by him and through him and for him primarily. Yes, we benefit from it, but primarily it's made for Jesus. But as we keep reading in this passage, it's not just that we have a maker who's made us for himself. We also have a redeemer who's redeemed us for himself. Now notice this as we keep going, and there's something interesting that happens here. So Paul does this poetic thing where he's kind of got creation and then new creation. And notice the language as we read through this, the similar language from creation to new creation. Because he picks up basically on the same ideas as Jesus was there in the beginning of creation and then there at the beginning of this new creation. We see this from verse 18. We see this, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. There it is, that language. The firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So we see in those first verses we're created, we're made for our maker. But here we see we're redeemed for our redeemer. That's the picture we get. And again, it's like creation was made by and through and for Jesus, this new creation, redemption, the hope that we have was by and through and for Jesus. So firstly, it's by Jesus. There's no other name that can save. Jesus alone is the one in all of this world. Jesus is alone the one who can save. No one else can do it. But it's not just Jesus who saves, it's also through Jesus. And so like the world was created through his power and his creativity and his wisdom, this new creation comes through his love and his grace and his blood. We see that there in verse 20, it says that, and it really highlights that word through, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace, through his blood shed on the cross. We are saved, or we are offered this hope of being saved because of what Jesus did at the cross. It came through what he did there. 
Now, the reason this matters is because throughout the Bible, we see this word or this idea of sin come up a lot of the times, and really it gets at the heart of what's broken or separated us from God. And at the heart of sin, and and it sort of gets at this in verse 21, so you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So it's a mind thing and a behavior thing, but at the heart of it is actually just putting me at the center. I'm not going to listen to Jesus. I'm not going to do what he wants me to or what he says. I'm just going to do my own thing because my world revolves around me. So if I want to do something, I'm going to do it. Eve, in the very beginning, in the garden, she just did what she wanted. Adam just did what he wanted. That's at the heart of sin. It's when I center my life on myself. And this is telling God to get stuffed. So there's hostility between us and God. We become alienated from God, the one who made us for himself. But do you see what happens here? Jesus does something about it. And see, where in the beginning his glory was seen in his high status, he was lifted up, his magnitude at the beginning, he was there by himself creating this world. Where his magnitude was at the beginning, now we see his magnitude at the cross, not from his high status, but from his low status, because Jesus let go of his high status. He entered into creation, and he did that so that he could die on a cross, a cross that was made out of the wood that he created in front of a people that he made. He died on the cross to reconcile and redeem us to himself so that we could be united to Jesus. This is the hope of the world. This is how we are saved. It's through Jesus' blood alone. No one else can save. There is no other way. So we see Jesus, he saves us by himself and through his blood. Now again, what's this got to do with purpose? What's this got to do with what we're living for? Well, we see it here explicitly. Like creation was made by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, this new creation, this redemption was by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And verse 18 captures this. We see this so clearly in verse 18. The point of all of this, it says, he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the point of the church. So if you ever go to a church that doesn't speak about Jesus, they're doing something wrong. If a church doesn't consistently and constantly point to the beauty of Jesus, they're doing it wrong. He's the head. He's the point of the church. And then it says he's the firstborn from among the dead. Now again, which firstborn is it? Born first, right? The first one to do it? Or high status? Well, the context shows us that. He's the first one to come through death. So it's the the first one, born first, right? He came through death first, but then here's the point of it all. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. The point of the cross, the reason Jesus did what he did at the cross, who was it for? What was the point of it for? It was for Jesus. That's the point of the cross. Right, so that in everything he might be the first. You see that? So that he might be the first in everything. Now what does that do for you? Right, hang on, the, the cross was actually all about Jesus, that he's the center, that I'm not the center of the redemption story of God, that he is? He's the center of the story. He's the one that it's all about. Now do we benefit from it? Of course we do. Of course we benefit from the cross. Of course we benefit from it. We benefit from it. We get a relationship with God. 
We get the hope of eternal life. We get, we get all of this. We get the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Of course, we benefit from it, but it's not primarily for us. And when we think the cross is all about us, we're like a three-year-old who thinks the fridge is just for us. It's primarily for Jesus, for his purposes and his glory and his kingdom. And what we're seeing is that whenever God works for his glory, it's always going to be for our good. We benefit from it, but it's not primarily for us. So we see in this passage the bigness of Jesus, the magnitude of Jesus. He's the maker who's made us for himself, the redeemer who's redeemed us for himself. Now, what does this look like for us to grasp this? As we see this truth, because this passage is one of the the most beautiful passages in holding up Jesus. So what does this do for us as we kind of think about this? What does it mean for us? Well, the reality is if we can grasp Colossians 1, 15 to 23, if we can grasp this and the bigness of Jesus, then what it's going to do for us is it's actually going to transform our lives so that the magnitude of Jesus sets the path of our life. If we get the bigness of Jesus, it's going to change us. In fact, it's kind of like this, and we talk about this a little bit at Southside. Um, we, we use this imagery of the solar system. Okay, so in, uh, in 1542, I think, uh, it was Copernicus that kind of came up with this theory that the solar system didn't revolve around the world, but actually the sun was at the center of the solar system. It was called the Copernican Revolution, and it's the, the idea that everything else orbits around the sun. And because of the sun's gravitational pull, because in my scientific way of understanding, because the sun's so big, it sets the path of everything else. Now, the reason this is helpful is because this is what's supposed to happen with Jesus. If we grasp the bigness of Jesus, the magnitude of Jesus in creation, in the fact that the world is made by him and through him and for him, and in this new creation at the cross that, the world, that, that we are saved by him and through him and for him, then what happens is it sets the path of our life. If we get the bigness of Jesus, it sets the path of our lives. It's what we, we use this word magnification. It's this idea of orbiting around Jesus. Now, here's the question that I think needs to be asked. When you see Colossians 1, 15 to 23, it's impossible not to see the bigness of Jesus. You know, when you read it, it's just so overwhelming, I think, of how awesome Jesus is. And when you, when you think about it, and when you see the rest of the Bible as well, and the story of salvation, how it's all about Jesus, it kind of makes sense that he sets the path of our lives. So how is it then, here's the question, how is it then that for so many of us, we drift into some other gravitational pull? How is it, if Jesus is so big and so glorious and so wonderful, how come sometimes we can find ourselves orbiting our lives around other things? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it that we drift into other things? Well, I think this is worth thinking about for a moment this morning because I think this actually happens not in a big decision. Okay, so a big decision would be, okay, I don't want Jesus at the center of my life and I'm going to go after something else. Sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes we see that. But most often we move from a life centered on Jesus to a life centered on something else, not from a big decision, but from little decisions. It happens inch by inch, moment by moment, day by day, where all of a sudden, after years, we find ourselves centering on something else. 
So what does this look like? Well, there's a few different ways that we can do this. There's a few different aspects here to explore of how we can find ourselves orbiting our life around other things. So firstly, we can do this with work. Okay, so, so let's think about this with work. Right? Sometimes work can be the center of someone's life. We all have seen this unfold for someone or even ourselves. Now, how does it happen? It happens inch by inch, little by little. Right? So we start our jobs, and it's usually we start a job with 40 hours a week. And if you remember when you first got your first job, we were exhausted. And then what happens is that 40 hours after a couple of months, we figure it out, and then they ask a little bit more of us. And so we're starting to do a little bit more, and then all of a sudden, it's not 40 hours, it's 45, and then it's 50, and we've just slowly done more. And then we stay at that job, and if we're good, eventually what happens is the job moves from hours to jobs, right? Where it's not about the hours that you do at work, it's about getting the jobs done. And we sell ourselves the dream, if I just get the jobs done, I can go home. But it never works like that. Now, how do we move from that? It didn't happen overnight. And sometimes what can happen is the jobs keep coming in and we're working more and more, and all of a sudden we've gone from a 40-hour job to a 60 to 70 hour job. Now that, it didn't happen overnight. It happened little by little, day after day, month after month. And then all of a sudden you take a step back and you look at, okay, so what is the gravitational pull of our life? What's the center? Is it Jesus or is it work? And what we begin to notice is in that 60, 70 hour work week, everything just fits around work. Our kids get the leftovers. Church gets rarely a sight in on that. Or if it is, we're reluctant in that. There's no way I'm going to a growth group because I'm working too long and it's too difficult and too tiring. Now, you see what's happened in that? The gravitational pull becomes work. That's the center of our life. And Jesus just fits somewhere in those outer rings around work. And that didn't happen overnight. It happened little by little. It can happen with work. Maybe your experience with that is a little bit different. Maybe that didn't explain exactly what your experience was. Maybe you're even in the middle of that, but work can be the center. We can also make study the center of our life. So if you're at school, we, we can do this with study. Okay, if you're at uni, this is true for us, and it's worth thinking about this too if you're a parent of kids in school or uni, because study can be the center of our life. Now, it doesn't start like that. School starts fun. After a number of years, though, what happens is the exams start getting a little bit harder and the assignments more and more difficult. And then all of a sudden, they just keep coming in. They pile up. Or they get to this moment where like, we have this couple of weeks where it's just full on. And then there's the pressure. Pressure of ourselves to do well. Pressure from our parents. Pressure from people around us to go well at that. And then the extracurricular stuff comes in where we once had one night out and now we have one night at home if we're lucky. And we study later, later and later and later until finally we finish the term or the semester and sleep for six weeks. Now, what has happened there? Study becomes the center of our life. Right now, did it happen overnight? Of course it didn't, little by little, moment by moment. But now, where we never said no to things at church, we never said no to youth or church or growth group, now we've said no a few times. Well, we haven't read the Bible, but we've read a few textbooks. And why is that? Well, it's because study becomes the center of our life. Well, this can happen with family as well. Right now, family takes so much of our time, and 
You know, if you're a mum, particularly with a little kid, that's the way that God has designed it. But what happens is, or what can happen over time, we start to make family not just the gift from God that we're entrusted with, but our identity, our value. Right? Where my kids' actions and what my kids do directly impacts my heart and my value, my worth. Right? And so if my kids misbehave in public, that is a direct, that is a direct sense of my worth or value. Or their study. Right? That my kids need to do well at school because if they don't, then it reflects poorly on me. And so what we can do is we can begin to crush our kids. And then they get older, and then they become an adult to make decisions for themselves. And if, if they're our identity, that's a really dangerous spot to be in. We can make them everything. Their decisions reflect on us, even as adults. Now, I'm not speaking about the nature of mourning and sadness and all of that sort of stuff, but when they're our worth, when there's a direct line between what our kids do and who I am, we've centered our life on our kids. Or finally, let's think about sport. Sport can be one that we center our life on, whether it's through playing sport or watching sport or our kids playing sport. Sport often begins as a good thing. You know, we're fit around Jesus, and it was actually a helpful thing for us to meet some other people, you know, exercise, that's all good. We played on a Saturday, it was good. We trained on the weekdays. But then one sport turned to two. And one night turned to two nights, and Saturdays moved to Sundays. And at first, it wasn't a big deal because it didn't impact church that much, maybe once or twice. But as the years roll on, all of a sudden our kids get older, our position moves, and the games go later, and then we miss church. And at once... We never miss church for sport, but now we've never missed sport for church. Now, how has that happened? It didn't happen overnight. Little by little, season after season, all of a sudden, sport is being the center of our life where Jesus just fits wherever he can around that. Or this can be with watching sport as well. Right? When we're watching it, once upon a time, we watch one game a week, and then it was a few games, and then it was every game. And then it was every sport. And then we knew every person that ever played any sport, we could talk to anyone about anything to do with sport. And watching sport has become the center of our life, right? Because the last time I had a quiet time or read my Bible, right, can't remember that, but I definitely got up at 3 a.m. to watch a soccer game. Now, maybe that doesn't explain exactly what it looks like for you, but we can make sport the center of our life. Now, this can happen with anything, with social media, with... Uh, gaming, with just time spent online. Anything can have the gravitational pull and it just it happens little by little, moment by moment, inch by inch, where all of a sudden if we actually stop and reflect on it, we've made something else the center of our life, where Jesus is on the outer ring and he just fits in wherever he can fit in. But there's a problem with that. Jesus doesn't deserve to fit on the outside. He's the maker who made us for himself and the redeemer who redeemed us for himself. He has only one right position and it's in the middle where everything else fits around him. And so this morning, maybe this is an opportunity for us to see again the beauty and the magnitude of Jesus and come back to centering a life on him. 
Maybe this morning there's conversations we need to have in the car. Maybe there's discussions we need to have once the kids go to bed at night. Maybe there's things that we need to think about just on our own or in growth groups this week or discussions after the service about what has become the center of our life and then decisions that need to be made in that. Because can you, can you imagine a church where we all had Jesus at the center? Can you imagine the beauty of this church? If Jesus would, I mean, we would be such a, a powerful church in our community if Jesus was at the center of our life. We would be such a loving church each Sunday if Jesus was at the center of our life. We'd be growing in our faith. We'd be serving each other. We'd be taking every opportunity we could do that if Jesus was at the center. There's such a beautiful picture here if we can put the one who deserves to be at the center in the center of our life. So this morning what we're going to do is there's going to be an opportunity for us to commit to this or recommit to this. Maybe it's the first time, maybe it's a a recommitment. Because here at Southside, we're going to work through in this series these things called my commitments. Where it's a commitment to this church and a commitment to what God is doing in this church to make much of Jesus. So here's the commitment that uh, is going to be on the screen, but I'm going to pray through it in a second. So the commitment is this, I will magnify God by offering, uh, by offering my life uh, to God as a living sacrifice. So this is the idea of all of life centering on Jesus. And I'll magnify God by gathering with God's people every week to sing and pray and sit under his word so that I can regularly reorbit my heart and life around him and his purposes. Now I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to pray through some of the stuff that we've seen and I'm going to pray through this commitment. And if this morning this is something that you want to recommit to, or commit to for the first time, then what I'm asking is at the end of this prayer, just simply say out loud, amen. Because amen, all that means is I agree. And so I'm going to pray this prayer. If you want to recommit this morning or commit this morning, then here's a step for you to take in this. And this step is the first step, right? Because I know there's conversations that need to be had. There's decisions that need to be made. There's things that need to change if we're going to do this. But let's begin here by recommitting together and then we're going to sing to reorbit our heart on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this picture of Jesus. We thank you for the beauty and the magnitude of Jesus. God, creation was made by him and through him and for him and we thank you for this. We thank you that we get to benefit from creation. Father, we thank you for Jesus who came into our world, who gave up his high status and became low for us, who died on a cross to redeem us, to reconcile us, to give us his hope of eternal life. God, we recognize our tendency to make everything about us. But in this moment now, we want to come back to you. We want to come back to you and we want to recommit to you. Jesus, we want to recommit to magnifying you, to make all of our lives a living sacrifice to you because you're worth it. And we want to recommit, Lord, to magnifying you by gathering each Sunday to sit under your word, to pray together, to sing together as an opportunity to reorbit our lives around you. Jesus, we want you at the center of our life. You are worthy of the center of our life. And so we pray for your help in this, and your guidance in this, and your wisdom in this, and your grace in this. And we pray that we would come back to having you at the center where everything else fits around you in the way that we were designed and reconciled for. And we pray this together as a church in Jesus' name.
Amen.